welcome to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. This episode sees Harley Everett and Rohit Chakraborty talk about air pollution and the Sheffield Climate Monitor. Invisible pollution. I'm Harley Everett and I'm here with Rohit to talk about the Sheffield Climate Monitor and the pollutants PM2.5 and PM10. Hi, I'm Rohit and I'm a air pollution researcher working at the University of Sheffield. So your research is into PM2.5 and PM10. So what exactly are they? So PM2.5 or PM10 or particulate matter PM, they are really small dust particles. They are so small, like 3% the diameter of a human hair. So we can't see it. And that's the major challenge with PM. Um, These small little particles are all around us. We cannot see them. We cannot imagine uh, how bad it could be for us when we are breathing it, but we are breathing it in. And our defense system, you know, our nose can act as a defense from bigger pollutants, but not for these little PM. So PM 2.5, it does mean it's 2.5 micron, which is really, really small. Mm. PM 10 10 micron, slightly bigger. Okay, so that's why it's got the number then? Yeah. So is there one for like 7, 8, 9 and so on or is there just certain? There are certain like buckets. So there's PM1, which is 1 micron. Okay. We also call it ultrafine particles. And then it's 2.5, PM10. Would you say the finer ones are probably more dangerous because they're easier to slip into your bloodstream or get into your body? Yeah, exactly. They are smaller and... Also, that means smaller particles have a bigger surface area. And also it means it has the number of particles for unit of surface concentration is more or higher. So higher the number of particles with bigger surface area can cause uh, more difficulty and severe problems than the bigger particles we breathe in. Okay. So where do these pollutants actually come from? It can come from various sources and it's quite complicated. Um, It could be local, so wood burners are the biggest source of PM particles in the UK at least, Um, but it can also be from transport, it can be from uh, industries, industry emissions, it can be from any other fossil fuel burning. Uh, A lot of it is also from the local bonfires, barbecues we have, uh, and trash, and people keep burning trash everywhere. So these locally impact a lot, but there are also long-distance transboundary pollutant, as we say. You know, particles are being carried in from other places. So depending on the wind direction, if it's, you know, coming from the Central Europe or sometimes even from, we have seen uh, particulate matter being carried from the Saharan desert. So it can be, the source could be anything and it's challenging to understand what the actual sources are. Okay. Would you say it's mainly a human problem, these pollutants? Mainly from human uh, activities or anthropogenic activities, yes, most of it. But there could be some natural aerosols as well. Uh, For example, sea salt is something which we often find around coastal areas and for um, people involved in naval, navy or something like that. That's where we have to classify which are more dangerous to human health and which are less so sea salt, even they can be damaging to our lungs or it can cause uh, asthma problems, but they probably are less uh, chemically uh, disturbing to our bloodstream. 
compared to say a pollutant rising from burning trash in your garden which are laced with uh, chemicals and even from transport laced with diesel petrol which are the worse mm. uh, in my opinion as you said before um some of your research was on wood burners yeah um so we recently did a big study uh, measuring real world emission from these wood burners we deployed sensors inside and outside home of 20 participants and we tracked their usage of wood burners for a month and we had over 260 users recorded over the time of three or four months yeah and surprisingly well it's not surprising to me but to them who are using the wood burners we found that when they use a wood burner it's significantly higher the level of pollution inside their houses compared to people who never used a wood burner or the same people who actually has a wood burner but they didn't use it. Okay. So the same people when they use it has a higher level of pollution inside their houses, okay. in their living rooms. and you know. So I guess it's comparable to being a smoker then almost in your home? Um, yeah, we often try to equate uh, smoking levels uh, and PM levels as well. So there was a paper around this where... We say 22 micrograms, that's the unit micrograms per cubic meter, where how we measure PM levels. So we can say 22 micrograms is equivalent of smoking one cigarette. And we have seen people exposed to way higher levels than that. So it's basically smoking uh, sometimes six to seven cigarettes a day and could be 30 or more in a month. That's actually... Pretty crazy, considering at the moment it's quite popular to have wood burners, especially for kind of the more middle class at the moment. It's since we've gotten rid of all all wood burners, it's now just become really popular again to have them. Yeah, and it's funny because people are not using wood burner to keep them warm. They are just keeping it because they like how they look. It's the aesthetic point, or they just feel it. You know, they feel oh, it's nice. It's so cozy and. Uh, when we were interviewing these people and they said, oh, it feels nice to have a wood burner, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone actually use it for primarily for their heating? We had just one participant who primarily who had a central heating. They removed it because of the cost. Okay. And um, they now use wood burners. That's actually pretty interesting. Is it cheaper? It's not cheaper and... It's probably the same, if not more, and it requires a lot of maintenance. Yeah, you need like a chimney sweep. Then yeah, and the wood. exactly. And and this guy was really he knows how to build a fire, and he is an engineer. Uh, he works on ventilation, and he has done a great job of uh, maintaining the lower level uh, pollution level inside his house despite burning wood. That's the thing. Like he, in my eye, he's an expert, but most of the participants they are not and they don't care what they're burning and they put anything inside the wood burners from calendars any pages they find no none of them i've seen like actually even take care of these things you can't just put in any rubbish in <laughs> it releases a lot of chemical fumes and particles so it's quite bad so back on pm 2.5 and pm 10 how come no one's I've never heard of this until I started the project, compared to, say, CO2, which everyone seems to know about. How come there's just no campaigns about it? It's not. I haven't really read much about it in the news. 
we kind of live in a bubble, I feel, because you know, in, in social media, the more you search on a thing and they keep giving you same recommendations, I feel like, oh, it's always... I, I'm more into environmental stuff, so I always find things around carbon dioxide and uh, global warming and climate change. But yeah, you are right, because there are a lot more noise around climate change and or climate cancer, how I say, um, and global warming. But there are less around PM, but there certainly is a number of people who are aware, but not as much as you would like to. And the reason I think it's because we cannot see the pollution or we cannot judge uh, the harm it does to our body. WHO says it causes 7 million deaths every year from air pollution alone. So it's a very bigger number. Uh, Is that global? Than, it's a global number, okay. yes. 7 million deaths are premature deaths, uh, which is caused by air pollution globally. People can't actually comprehend, I guess, the big numbers sometimes, and we cannot see it. You know, the 1952 Great Smog of London, uh, it's visible, you can relate to it. People actually thought it's bad. But because of this invisible element to this kind of pollution we are facing right now, um, we haven't been actually acting on it uh, as much as we should. And I think... 10, 20, 30 years down, we would we might look back and say, oh my God, what were we doing? Are they quite new then, these two pollutants? Have they just they, been recently found? or? It has been around for decades. I, you know, um, there was a Scottish uh, scholar, a scientist, uh, who coined um, the PM term, and it was a 1900-something paper. It was like 20, 30 years ago. And he in, in that paper, he actually mentioned about ultrafine particles, small particles, and there has been experiments and people have been aware, at least in the um, scientific world, people know about these problems. It's just recently, a few years, I think, it's more on the news. And one reason that could be factor why it's more awareness right now than it has been before is because the census has become very cheap. So which costed around 30 grand, now it can cost less than 30 quid mm. to monitor at the same accuracy. With the, um, what was it called, the observatory, what census do they currently have around the city then? So Urban Flows Observatory, we have deployed around, well, to date I think we have more than 200 census around the city. There are different layers of sensors, so there could be high-quality, high-cost sensors to high-quality, low-cost sensors to low-quality, low-cost sensors, and they are uh, obviously uh, dictated by the price. So, such as there are sensors uh, which cost about five to seven grand. It can measure ozone, nitrogen dioxide levels, uh, particulate matter, weather conditions like temperature, humidity. They are very accurate ones, and there are cheap ones, which uh, we have deployed hundreds of them, which cost about 30 quid to make, and they just measure PM 2.5 or PM 10. Okay, why do you think it's important to monitor these and use these sensors at the moment? We have the right to know what we are breathing. If you are told to drink dirty, murky water, you wouldn't do it, would you? But when it comes to air and we are breathing dirty air we don't uh, seem to say a thing yeah i agree if we were 
able to see what we were breathing on a visual way. It's exactly the same thing. Exactly, and that's one of the purposes to make the invisible air pollution visible, and the sensors can do that in a certain way. Yes, we have to make the data more accessible to public in a non-technical way so everyone can understand and relate to, and the sensors do help to do that few years back, just two years back, we had only seven monitoring stations, which uh, the DEFRA and city council ones, which costs um, £100,000 to, you know, have one. And they're pretty expensive. They give a reading once in one hour and we can't have them all over the city. So we need a very dense network to actually understand what people are breathing. And for that, we need to fill up the gaps between these uh, stations. And that's where these little tiny sensors, which cost nothing really, uh, come into play. With Sheffield being kind of the green city, do you think it's got a reputation compared to others to be a bit more pollution-free? It's funny you mention that because we have been in news for the last couple of years uh, for all our work we have been doing. And there has been people who said, oh, shut up, Sheffield is a green city and we are probably better than other cities. And I wouldn't call it worse than any other cities, but probably it's the same because of the nature of particles or pollution we have. Sometimes tree has no role to play. And sometimes if it's not very well planned, the layout of the trees, how they are planted, if they're not well planned, the pollution could build up instead. I think uh, we've possibly better urban planning. We could solve, well, not solve oh, yes. pollution, but improve it. Oh yes, it's it's I th- that's definitely I don't I it's not an assumption it's actually <laughs> a fact we actually need to have a proper spacing between trees how it's planted to actually uh, see a good uh, dispersion of pollution that gets built up in a city otherwise that's actually really interesting because I read on the news probably yesterday actually that I think the government have made it a requirement now or trying to enforce it where all new builds are going to have tree lined streets. Yeah, I mean, you have to be very careful, like I said, how you're going to do that, but mm. it's definitely going to be helpful. Trees, of course, helps in, in absorbing pollution and bringing down pollution, specific trees, of course. Um, I have read a similar, art- well, not similar article, but an article on trees uh, in Sheffield, actually, where they selectively breed plants and trees. So now there are more male than female uh, plants, and that resulted into more pollen, and there are no trees to absorb or take the pollen from there so Mm. people are who are asthmatic they might suffer from in this season because there are more pollen in the air than it should be okay how come they have more male than female trees was it just a one i i I, I didn't even know gender thing was a a problem uh, when it came to plants so i don't completely remember why this happened but probably it's an aesthetic thing or this has been a practice uh for a few years, selective breeding that has become a problem when it comes to air pollution. That's that's pretty interesting. Like I know recently in Sheffield, the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about some people removing the trees and a lot of controversy with it. Save, save the tree campaign. Yes, that's yes, yeah. That's a, that's a brilliant thing. Yeah, my friend uh, Graham Turnbull, who was part of it and is leading the Clean Air for Sheffield group he's an activist who helps me deploying the sensors and you know, takes care of the sensors amazing great guy and he was just saying that yes uh, we actually won uh, and Sheffield council has now 
decided to stop um, cutting down more trees. So big victory here. Yeah. That's really good because I don't think people realize how important trees are. Like, yeah, they look nice and they do give us our oxygen, but yeah. I don't think people realize all the other things they do. Yeah, it's good for your health, good for your environment. It's good for animals. Good for animals, yeah. Yeah. Great yeah. point, yeah. So with the sensors at the moment, considering we're going through a bit of a crazy time with COVID, has there been a really large change in what you've seen in the data? Yes and no. Um, let me explain. <laughs> Nitrogen dioxide levels, which are primarily from traffic, has seen a drastic reduction since the 23rd of March or when the you know, the lockdown came into force. So we have seen a sharp fall all over the UK in NO2 levels, but we haven't seen decrease of particulate matter levels. If anything, we have seen increase in particulate matters. Do you have any theories to why that could be? Yeah, I mean, so when I say increase, because generally this time of the year, April, May actually, just before there is higher i think it's the highest levels of particulate matter in the air do you think that's barbecue season um partially but the major is actually it's the agriculture season okay so what people do is you can't you know plant or use fertilizers during winter or rainy season so this is the uh, plantation time and these fertilizers uh, ammonia based fertilizers they spray it all over their fields this time that tends to be uh, carried in the, with the wind and we actually see the levels of high pollution levels during april may do you think like agriculture is like one of the biggest reasons for certain pollutants or for pm and for a short period yes for no2 not at all it's more most of it is traffic like i was previously you know saying we saw a very sharp decline during the lockdown and with the you know the gradual relaxation. Yeah. Would you say right when the law well the rules were lifted it just spiked yeah. or well it didn't um, instantly spike because it was a phased uh, relaxation mm. so it was a very phased uh, <laughs> rise in pollution. <laughs> I feel like if you could look on each day of the monitors when mm. Boris does his speeches and you just kind of <laughs> yeah yeah kind of you know, good yeah kind of correlates with his yeah. speeches probably <laughs> yeah it's a gradual uh, rise in pollution levels outside London and in London, mm. um, the levels have still been lower than previous years. And I think it's because most people are still working from home, at least well, a lot of them are. Yeah. And there has been a push with the active transport, which is good. Uh, in London, especially, I've seen the low levels are lower for nitrogen dioxide than previous years. And it could be that but it's also, you know, has a very complicated uh, relationship with the chemistry, uh, where, um, you know, chemical reaction with the weather, uh, different other particles like ozone. So nitrogen dioxide levels, ozone keeps converting in, uh, into each other in presence of sunlight. So weather has a big role to play as well. How far back have you got the sensor data at the moment then? Because I feel like in more recent years, attitudes, especially recently with Greta and everything, attitudes yeah. have changed more because of our awareness of pollution. and. Yeah people want to take more public transport. Yeah. Does it go back quite far than your sensor data? Or? No, um, I started uh, my PhD in 2018. So that was my first thing to do. I realized we don't have much data. The first three, four months, I spent entirely deploying the sensors. So okay. 
our data goes back as far as 2019, January. Okay. You mentioned um, off recording that uh, you're making a predictive model for air quality. Do you want to talk about that a little more? Because that was pretty interesting. As part of my PhD, uh, we are trying to build a spatiotemporal prediction modeling map. So what it basically means is we are able to predict air pollution levels anywhere in space and time. So predict it <laughs> like you know, three days ahead, one hour ahead, a few days ahead, much like weather forecasts work. Mm. So we are trying to, how we are trying to do is basically make a data fusion algorithm. So with the help of you know machine learning and deep learning algorithms, we are merging data sets. So air quality data sets, um, weather data, traffic data, and even taking into account trends such as you know weekdays, weekends, time of the day, or say festivals like bonfires or New Year's Eve, taking into account different factors. Um, we are building this model and it should be a very accurate model which can uh, predict what the air pollution levels would be in an around your area. So you can plan your life around it, basically. Would you say COVID's changed any of the data at the moment or has made it think of it differently? Because I know with machine learning from my computer science background, a lot of it is relied on the data set that it's fed. Yeah. And yeah, at the yeah. moment, it's a bit strange times. Yeah. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because machine learning is basically training on past data. And try what the algorithm does is to find a trend, a relationship with the past data, and that's how they predict the future. But the lockdown is something that hasn't happened with the data before and data hasn't seen something like that happen a drastic fall in nitrogen dioxide levels they haven't seen it so yes um, it would cause uh, inaccuracy in the model and we have to account in for that so but for pm we are good we are still as bad as it can get <laughs> we are good that it is bad <laughs> yes i'm very glad to say <laughs> this is still bad but do you think with what we've experienced with covid and the lockdown it's interesting to see how how much humans actually have impact on pollution maybe not pm but pollution in general it's interesting don't you think it's interesting seeing how kind of the environment has healed quite a bit in the few months that we've had lockdown i mean i love it you know <laughs> this is this is something we are you know part of a global experiment and it's it's a giant global experiment intended or intended or not we are part of it and when we see this good changes happen all around us and we think okay maybe it's not the end of the world as some you know sometimes we think is everything's coming to an end maybe it's not we have still hope and that's good yeah it was really exciting just reading the articles of say like rams returning to the cities in wales yes, in and wales yeah exactly yeah. so it's it's really great to see how nature can bounce back so quickly when human activities stop Mm, it's like the trees you mentioned as well. It's crazy how resilient nature can actually be. Exactly. And mm. yeah, sometimes maybe makes me think maybe humans are the problem. <laughs> we just need to are. get rid of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be a bit counterproductive, but maybe we have to somehow uh, figure out how to live in harmony with the nature, be closer to nature and, you know, regain that lost uh, touch with nature. Mm, definitely. With the um, census, is it just Sheffield or do you have any globally? Primarily in Sheffield and around, 
but uh, my work has been now been extended to um, Uganda. So in Kampala, we have uh, replicated the study to find out how our model behaves in different conditions, different uh, challenges. So we have now deployed around 60 to 70 sensors in Kampala. But of course, there are different challenges we have faced and we are trying to deal with that before we actually work with the data there. Okay, well, what kind of challenges did you find? In Sheffield, you know, like we have different problems like uh, sometimes the Wi-Fi signal is weak. Say there is a spider who <laughs> made his home inside the sensor case. <laughs> and these are little problems which can be easily solved. But in Kampala, the challenges are more difficult and uh, hard to um, deal with. For example, they don't have power or electricity for several hours every day. So we had to you know, retrofit with a solar panel instead of using power. They barely have Wi-Fi in the city. So we had to use GSM network, which is also very poor, but it kind of works. So uh, we are using SIM card, local SIM cards there, had to you know work through a deal. Um, and it involves you know more money spent, but uh, it it works. But it's just the challenges are difficult, and also it's a very dusty city, in my opinion. And the dust kind of builds up very frequently, and someone has to be there uh, to clean the open the case and clean the dust out of it. Otherwise, uh, there have been sensors which have stopped working after a week or so because the dust has clogged everything inside. Mm. Have you found any correlation between the data that you've read there and the data in Sheffield, also the data in London? Is it all quite similar, or is there like quite cultural differences? To be honest, we haven't uh, compared Sheffield or London's data to Kampala, and I mean it's something we should probably will do after point when we are more structured here in the first place there is of course uh, the different difference in the way of living there such as people use um, you know fossil fuel to cook and they have open cooking open fire cooking there which is a very significant source of particulate matter here we don't often do so but here we have more wood burners instead <laughs> which kind of can cause similar problems so any, any finishing thoughts? We have to think air pollution as a more of a social problem than a technical challenge. Uh, it's, it's not a new thing. It has been around for decades. And this is the point where we should act um, globally as well as locally. So there is a bit for governments all around the world who should come together and you know, work together to find a solution without... Uh, working together, we wouldn't be able to solve the problem locally. Well, thank you for your time. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. And be sure to check out the uh, Sheffield Climate Monitor. It's got some pretty interesting stuff on there. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at FestivalMind and at facebook.com forward slash festival of the mind. Mm-hmm.